he exposed more than 1,600 Soviet bloc intelligence officers, agents, handlers, plus their operations. And his information led to the breaking of some of the most serious KGB and Polish intelligence spy rings in the West. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Today we speak with author Tim Tate about his new book, The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, The Secret History of Agent Golianevsky. Mikhail Golianevsky remains one of the most important yet least known and most misunderstood spies of the Cold War. Even his death is shrouded in mystery and he's been written out of the history of Cold War espionage until now. Tim Tate draws on a wealth of previously unpublished primary source documents to tell the dramatic true story of the best spy the West ever lost of how Golianevsky exposed hundreds of KGB agents operating undercover in the West, from George Blake and the Portland spy ring to a senior Swedish Air Force and NATO officer and a traitor inside the Israeli government. The information he produced devastated intelligence services on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Now, I could really use your support to continue producing the podcast, a simple monthly donation via Patreon will, as a monthly supporter, get you the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you will bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing the news of Cold War Conversations with your friends. There is also a book giveaway accompanying this episode, so do make sure that you check out the episode notes, which will appear as a link wherever you are listening. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Tim Tate to our Cold War Conversation. Lieutenant Colonel Mikhail Golinevsky was a very, very senior figure in the Polish intelligence service and counterintelligence service in the 1950s. He also simultaneously worked for the Soviet KGB, essentially as its point man in inside Polish intelligence in Warsaw. And what was his motivation for working for the West? Golinevsky, according to his account, and according to and that's confirmed by the CIA's version of events, decided he had a well, he had a sort of Damascene conversion in which he realized that the communist system in which he had grown up and from which he had profited was in his in his view wrong and wicked. And he decided he was going to funnel top-secret Soviet bloc intelligence information to the West. And he started in April 1958 and did so anonymously as what's called an agent in place for the next 33 months. How 
important was he, would you say, in the pantheon of Cold War spies? Golinevsky was really the most important and the most devastating, if you look at it from the Iron Curtain point of view, spy of the early and mid-Cold War. Now, that's not my assessment. That's the assessment of the CIA, which gratefully received the information he gave as an agent in place and later as a defector. He exposed, by its count, more than 1,600 Soviet bloc intelligence officers, agents, handlers, plus their operations, and led and his information led to the breaking of some of the most serious um, KGB and Polish intelligence spy rings in the West. And that's what I found fascinating is the you know the the information that he was he was passing over and the double agents that he was revealing to the West, where where the West had no idea these people were in place. Absolutely none until Golyanevsky came along until he started feeding this information, the West was blissfully ignorant. And when I say the West, we mean the CIA, MI5, MI6, and NATO intelligence, uh, intelligence in Germany, and intelligence in Israel. They were all, by and large, blissfully ignorant of the mulls burrowed away deep inside their midst. How is he passing this, this info over to the West? Well, the saga begins when he sends anonymously a letter to the US ambassador in Bern in Switzerland in April 1958. You know, we have to stress he did not give his name. He simply gave a cover name. And that cover name was Heckenschutz. And translated from German, that means sniper. So henceforth, he was known as sniper. And he said, I've got all this information. I want to send it to you, but I actually want to send it to the FBI because every other American intelligence and government agency is penetrated by the KGB and its allies. So I'm sending this to you as an invitation, and if you want to take me up on it, please place an advert in the classified columns of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung signed in the name of the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and then I'll know that you're serious and that you want to go ahead. Well, this letter, which went to the ambassador, didn't find its way to the FBI. American protocol required that it went to the CIA, the very agency which Golyanevsky, sniper, had warned was penetrated. The CIA decided to impersonate, if you like, the FBI and the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, and place the advert in the classified columns. And from then onwards, always believing he was dealing with the FBI, Sniper, Golyanevsky, passed hundreds upon hundreds of pages of top-secret Soviet bloc intelligence and, indeed, hundreds upon hundreds of microfilm frames. And this, in the words of one CIA agent, this was a rich bounty. It was an an extraordinary haul of, an an, an unprecedented haul of Soviet bloc intelligence secrets. 
as you sort of alluded to earlier, it wasn't just NATO countries. It was Israel and Sweden as well that he was revealing. Yeah, I mean, the KGB, Moscow had realised that at the end of the war, once NATO was up and running, NATO was being essentially controlled by the US. And the best way into US secrets was via NATO and countries associated with NATO. It was a sort of easy back door, if you like. Um, And so NATO was targeted. Sweden was targeted because although it wasn't a member of NATO, it had some agreements with NATO. So that gave an extra backdoor in, and Israel was and would become strategically important and was strategically very closely aligned with US intelligence. As part of his role, he he had access to KGB secrets as well. So it wasn't just Polish intelligence that he was uh, feeding to the West. No, I mean, his primary job, his main employers, if you like, was the Polish intelligence service usually known as the UB. But at some point in the early 1950s, the KGB had decided that it wanted its own, you could call it a spy in the Polish intelligence camp, if you like, except that it was pretty much agreed between both Poland and the Soviet Union that this would happen. So he fulfilled a dual role. He was the UB, Polish intelligence's liaison with the KGB in Moscow, but he also acted as the KGB's eyes and ears on its Polish intelligence colleagues because it didn't quite trust them. <laughs> Little did they know that Golanievsky was feeding this information over, but I think that the KGB discovered after about a year that they had some sort of problem or some leak, didn't they? Yeah, just over a year, a little a little over a year after this extraordinary flow of information began arriving in Washington, really poor security procedures by the CIA and the US government allowed Moscow to, to learn that it had a mole in its midst that someone was feeding its secrets to the West. Now, it didn't know who, because at that point, no one in the CIA or any Western government agency knew who Sniper, this mysterious informant, they didn't know who he was. They had no identity. But the news of him feeding Soviet secrets, Soviet bloc secrets to the West reached the ears of the KGB through a lapse in American security, and the KGB began searching for its mole. It did make a rather fundamental error in doing so. It assumed that the leak was coming out of Warsaw, and so it assigned its own point man in Warsaw, Golyanevsky himself, to hunt for the mole. So Golyanevsky was essentially tasked by the KGB with tracking down himself. There's echoes of Philby here, isn't there, almost? Of- <laughs> well, yes, there are. And Philby sort of tiptoes his way around the edges of this story um, for much of the late 50s and early 60s. So readers will find that he crops up from time to time in slightly unexpected places. 
I wasn't aware of the the details of how this operation had had worked, and and particularly Golinevsky's later life, which is is well, it it's quite a tragic end, really. Um, so in 1960, the the KGB aren't getting what the information that they think they should be getting from Golanevsky and the sort of suspicion starts to fall on him. Yeah, I mean, the finger is gradually beginning to point back at Golanevsky himself. And there's a, a fascinating document that I discovered in which Golanevsky warns American intelligence. He still believes it's the FBI. It is, in fact, the CIA he's talking to. And he says, you know, we've got to be careful because... If this goes wrong, I will be put up against a wall. I will be shot, but I'm going to keep going. And he kept going and he kept trying, but more and more suspicion was beginning to fall on him. And so in December 1960, he realizes the game's the game's up. You know, he's been he's been at this business of feeding Soviet blocks um, secrets to the West for nearly three years but he's going to get caught. And when he gets caught, he's going to get a bullet in the back of the head. So he decides to defect and he goes on the run on Christmas Day, 1960. Yeah, and this is quite interesting here because his marital life is unravelling. And I think his the UB aren't happy that he's having an affair with, a, with an East German. And so they do actually allow him to go to East Berlin to end that relationship. And at that time, there's no wall in Berlin, so crossing from east to west is relatively easy. Golanowski's personal life was, to put it mildly, complicated. In Poland, he had married um, uh, a Russian-born Polish woman some years earlier. They had three children together. But he was plainly something of a Lothario, and was having at least two affairs, one of whom, as you say, was with a woman in East Germany, a woman called Ermgard Kampf. When the Stasi, the East German secret police, discovered this, as they were bound to do, and told Polish intelligence, what on earth is your agent doing, having an affair with an East German woman, this is a breach of security, the UB, Polish intelligence, gave Golanewski a pretty stiff talking to and said, that's enough, you've got to stop this. And he said, well, no, 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 I'm in love with her and she's in love with me and it would be terribly cruel um, to stop this. And they said, mm, well, maybe that's true and maybe it would have had more force if we didn't know you were simultaneously having another affair with another woman back in Poland and you'd promised to marry her. So they gave him his they gave him his marching orders. They said, "Go and finish it. End the relationship in person in in East Berlin, and then come back." And you've got essentially eight to ten days to do that. And they gave him a date in early January 1961, when he had to be back at his desk and ready to face the music. He makes his trek from Warsaw to East Berlin on Christmas Day and arrives late at night. And he spends the next few days ducking and diving across Berlin. It was a divided city, but it wasn't, wasn't divided by the wall. That hadn't gone up yet. 
so there was quite a lively trade in people follow uh, p- people being able to go between the zones. There was no real security. But Golianevsky realizes very quickly after he arrives that he's being tailed. Now, it's almost certainly a Stasi tail at that point, but he thinks quite probably it's also a U- there's a UB tail as well. So he spends the next three or four days ducking and diving, trying to dodge his tails, calling at the Polish embassy in East Berlin to collect some more money and some files he'd had sent there, and simultaneously finding a way to contact and speak to his girlfriend mistress in East Berlin and warn her that he's going to defect to the West and would she come with him, and also somehow to call without being spotted the American defector hotline, which is run by the CIA out of the US consulate. He has a pretty busy time for those three or four days, and all the time he's being tailed. Also, Ermgard has no idea he's working for Polish intelligence and the KGB. She thinks he's a journalist, I think. Yeah, poor Ermgard. Um, She is a a school secretary, an unmarried school secretary, who lives with her mum and dad in a not a bad apartment in East Berlin, by East Berlin standards at that time. But she thinks she's been dating for a couple of years a Polish journalist who is also, from what he told her, widowed. Now, she didn't even have his real name, much less the fact that he was a married father of three and a Polish spy. So when he finally tells her when he finally gets round to saying, look, I'm going to defect, will you come with me? He has to preface that by saying, I know I told you my name was Jan Roman, but it isn't. And that would have been a good point to come clean to her. But he doesn't. He tells her another lie. He gives her yet another false name. She for some reason, presumably because she was in love with him, falls for this and agrees to defect with him, though she has no idea where they're going. After maybe 24, 36 hours of him ducking and diving after having told her, he says, I'll meet you at your mum and dad's flat and we're going to head hightail it across to West Berlin. And after that, because... The Stasi will come looking for your mum and dad. They need to get out of East Berlin too. And so on the 4th of January, he he goes across to their flat, picks up Ermgard and walks out of East Berlin, across the border into West Berlin, rings the US embassy and says, I'm coming in. Be ready for me. Incredible, incredible. I love these Cold War spy stories because they really live up to expectation. I mean, one of the documents I managed to prize out of the CIA, and they have not been what you could call forthcoming, was the CIA officer's log of the entire defection saga, the day. And just reading this log is like seeing a Cold War spy movie. I mean, it's like you could almost see it in black and white. You know? And it's, it's an extraordinary series of events. 
so and it got it got even more bizarre when he finally got to the US consulate because what followed there was truly absurd. Go on, you can't leave us on the edge there. Sorry, that was too much of a cliffhanger. Well, he arrives at the US consulate giving yet another of his multiple f- false names and he's got Ermgard in tow with him. The CIA weren't really expecting her, but they usher them both inside the the consulate and say, we will give you both political asylum, but you, Sniper, because they still don't know his name, you have to come clean. You have to tell us exactly who you are, and you have to promise to divulge all the secrets. And, you know, that's a kind of pro forma standard condition of any defection. And it shouldn't have been a problem, but it was. Golinevsky got a bit uncomfortable at this point, and he said, yeah, before I tell you who I am, I need to tell you that this lady who I've told you is my wife, Ermgard, isn't my wife, she's my mistress, but can she please leave the room? The CIA scratch their heads a bit and say, well, okay. And they take her out. And there's this farcical scene where Ermgard and another CIA officer are walking up and pacing up and down the corridor while Golonevsky confides in yet another CIA officer about the reason for this odd event. And he said, she doesn't know who I am. She doesn't really know that we're going to America or wanting to go to America. And if we tell her now... I think she'll have a nervous breakdown. So can we just keep it between ourselves that that I'm still really a Polish journalist? And I'll tell her later. But on that basis, I will tell you who I really am. And CIA scratch their heads again and say, well, all right, it's a bit unusual, but you're important. And they ask him for his real name. He then gives them yet another of his false names and some papers and they spend some time going through this before he says, I don't know why you're doing that. That's not my real name. So they have to start all over again. Finally, finally, he says, he tells them his real name, Lieutenant Colonel Mikhail Golionewski, and that he's a senior figure in Polish intelligence and counterintelligence. And at that point, the CIA relaxes. It says, great. He's Sniper. He's the man who has fed us this amazing hall of secrets for the last nearly three years. He's now with us. We've got his real name. We've got his identity card, his documents. We're safe. We're going to, we can relax. I mean, in fact, the, the, the officer's accounts describe them as being joyous. If only they had been able to look three or four weeks or months into the future, they might have been a little less cheerful yeah because this is a early indication as to how high maintenance sniper is uh, is going to be for the uh, for the cia but so how how is he got out of berlin they were intending to fly him out of west berlin to wiesbaden where they have a defector reception center the cia has its drc there that night. But after all the nonsense with the identities and Ermgard having to pace up and down along the corridor, it was a bit late. So they fly him out 
at early doors the next morning, literally at dawn. And they get him to the defector reception centre. And the plan is that here he will stay for about 24 hours. That's pretty much average. At which point, during which time they will debrief him enough to establish that he is actually who he says he is and that he's genuine. And there's a whole CIA manual saying this is how you do it. And I got hold of the manual and it sets out the steps exactly as to, as to what they should do and should have done. That wasn't going to work with Golinevsky. It, the whole idea of establishing, in, in, in the CIA's phrase, establishing psychological superiority over this defector was never going to happen. Golinevsky is in charge. He makes it very plain from the very first moment that he is going to do what he wants to do. And so what should have been a 24-hour debriefing lasts a week. And it lasts a week primarily because he says, I've got all this information and all of it's urgent and you're going to listen. And it's he holds forth. And the, the, the CIA officer, who was a man called Howard Roman, who was handling this, realised that there was no way to turn off the tap, no way to shut off the spigot of information without doing damage. He just had to sit tight and let Golinevsky control proceedings and offload all this extraordinary um, detail about Polish intelligence and KGB covert operations in the West. And Western intelligence had had to hold off arresting the people that Golinevsky had previously mentioned in his communications because they didn't want to, obviously, anything to lead back to him at that point. So they were now in a position to move on these these agents that they knew were serving the Soviets. Yeah, I mean, as you say, from pretty much from the early days of his monthly intelligence reports smuggled to the West. The Western intelligence services, MI5, um, Shin Bet in uh, Israel, the CIA, and eventually the FBI, were monitoring and keeping close tabs on the people who, the, sp- the moles, the spies he identified. But because they didn't know who their benefactor was, they didn't know who Sniper was, much less where he was, they knew that they couldn't arrest them while he was in the wind behind the Iron Curtain. The moment he is safely tucked up in US custody in in Wiesbaden is the time they have to go in. And that's where the arrests of these moles, these spies, starts happening. And as you'll know from your previous work on the Portland spy ring, MI5 moved very quickly and began rolling up the five members of the Portland spy ring. Now, there was a lot more to it, but Golanevsky's safe housing in the DRC was the moment at which all these spies could begin to be arrested. Yeah. And and can we just talk about some of these other ones? Because I think some people might not be aware of them. I mean, 
One of the ones I wasn't aware of was this Swedish colonel Stig Venestrom. The Venestrom story is extraordinary. And in, in many ways, it symbolizes so much that was wrong with Western intelligence efforts against its Cold War, their Cold War adversaries. Wenneström was um, a, a colonel in the Swedish Air Force and a Swedish Foreign Service officer. And he had had a number of postings in Moscow and in Washington, D.C., he had worked often simultaneously for four separate intelligence services, rival intelligence services, enemy intelligence services, and they knew it. Each of them knew it, and yet somehow they managed to trust him with an eye-watering quantity of really extraordinarily secret and sensitive material he would have carried on. I mean, he'd been at this for 20 years. He'd worked for Nazi intelligence. He'd worked for the, uh, for the GRU, the Soviet military intelligence. He'd worked for American intelligence. And he'd worked for Swedish intelligence. And he was making a lot of money. Each of them was paying him separately. He was getting information from one to give to the other and vice versa and getting paid by both sides. He would have carried on doing this had Sniper Kolyanevsky not fingered him. He had every intention of carrying on. Only Kolyanevsky's intervention in the, in the whole sorry saga led to his arrest. And, and when he was arrested, and this, that's the basis for the chapter on Venestrom in my book, he gives this... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Huge confession. In which he says, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it took you a while, didn't it, to carry on? And there's this voluminous confession in which he sets out how he spied all, for all sides on all sides and got paid by all sides. So he was more than a double agent. He was getting towards quadruple or septuplet agent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think you, you have to take your shoes and socks off to count the number of people he was working for. <laughs> Um, I mean, the alarm bells should have rung 15, 20 years before Golianevsky finally identified him. And, you know, that will be a continuing theme in the Golianevsky saga. Time after time, Western intelligence trips up over its own shoelaces through bad tradecraft, through 
not talking to each other through simple arrogance. And I think it's fair to, to stress that, you know, at the end of the war, when the US starts to build what is its first effectively foreign intelligence service, what would go on to become the CIA, it, in its own words, was a newcomer at the game. Moscow, the various Russian, Imperial Russian, then Soviet intelligence services, were very, very, very experienced at the great game of spying and had been at it for decades and had been at it very successfully for decades. And America had to catch up and probably didn't do that until the mid to late 60s at the earliest. And Britain, well, Britain was half asleep on the job. As uh, Will will come on to more. So the, the Soviet spies start to get rolled up. And in Poland, he's charged with betrayal of the homeland, which is a grand uh, a grand charge. And the trial reveals his, his true biography rather than the sort of cobbled together one he's given the CIA. Yeah. And, you know, yes, that's absolutely true. In April 1961, he is put on trial in absentia, because by that point he's in a safe house, a CIA safe house on the east coast of the United States. But he's put on trial in in absentia in military court in Warsaw. And, you know, I think we're all kind of familiar with Soviet show trials, aren't we? You know, we, we know, we've seen the old footage the cowed and brutalized defendant making a, a tearful, often, confession of his treachery before he gets taken outside and gets the bullet in the back of the neck. This this trial, Golianevsky's trial, was not a show trial. It was conducted entirely in secret. I mean, there's absolutely no indication that anyone outside the UB, Polish intelligence and the KGB, knew it, ha- knew it had happened. The CIA certainly didn't know. And neither, obviously, did MI5 here. It lasts less than a day. It's all ta- Because it takes place in secret, Polish intelligence witnesses, and there are only two who give evidence to this, can be and are remarkably frank. How do we know? Well, one of the things I got hold of was Golinewski's Polish intelligence file, which is 1,100 pages. And I will come back to it in a bit. But it sets out page after page of transcripts of the trial and the findings and the accusations. And they are self-lacerating about how they allowed Golinevsky to betray them. And, you know, from from Polish intelligence point of view, from Poland's point of view, he's a traitor. You know, genuinely, he is a traitor, hence betrayal of the homeland. And after a day, the court finds him guilty and sentences him to death, which is the only the only sentence available. Because you, you allude to in the book of him having sort of 
high-level patrons that ease his journey through because he's a century in 1945, and yet within 15 years he's um, you know head of scientific in- intelligence branch. Yeah, I mean he. It's very plain from those Polish intelligence files and from his his records. Bear in mind, these are his records, the records of his career in Polish intelligence. And as you say, they're from 1945 onwards. The first thing they show you is that before 1945, he worked in a business, in a as an accountant, as it happens, in a business controlled by the Nazis. So he was essentially a collaborator. Now, it's not a particularly high-level collaboration, but he was a collaborator. And in post-war Poland, that meant something. It, did, it meant something not very good. And yet, whenever his colleagues in the Polish intelligence service complained about this, investigations are quashed, and there's a, there's a cryptic note about him being protected by people in Warsaw. In essence, he's selected and groomed as what will someone who will become a high flyer. And I think reading the files, it's pretty plain. One of the reasons for this is that he was prepared to work very hard and do what whatever was told he was told to do on behalf of his masters in the communist Polish government. So, meanwhile, he's in the the US passing as many secrets as he can to the the CIA. But within a a couple of months, there's another defection which clouds his status with the CIA. Golanovsky arrives in the US under yet another false name. False names become a a trope throughout this story. There are so many of them, and they are a reason, I think, for what eventually befell him. But he arrives there in in January. He's put up in a safe house, and everything from the start is absolutely hunky-dory and tiggity-boo. The CIA are delighted. This, I mean, he's revealing more and more and more details. He's not just revealing details of dates, times, places, names. He's brought with him 700 pages of documents. And he's he had, before he defected, he stashed more microfilm in a tree in Warsaw, in a park in Warsaw, which the CIA was able to recover. They've got this absolute mountain of top-grade intelligence. And they think he is, well, they say, he is the best effector they ever had. And they give him, they promise him a contract, they promise him employment, they promise him protection, and they start giving him money to help him live. More to the point, they sponsor his wedding to Ermgard Kampf in Virginia, even though he hasn't got any documents to show who he is, the CIA vouches for him and end up in, a, in something that will come back to haunt them, vouching for an entirely bigamous marriage because Golianewski's never bothered to get divorced in Poland. 
for the next, as you say, for the next nine, 10 months, everything goes swimmingly, more and more and more debriefing sessions. And then, at the, nearly a year after Golganevsky defects, a, a middle, low to middle ranking KGB officer knocks on the door of the CIA station chief in Helsinki and says, I want to defect and I want to defect now. And you have to get me out of here within two hours with my family. And the CIA does. And the man's name was Anatoly Golitsyn. And he would become both the the nemesis of both Golinevsky and the CIA and, for good measure, MI5 as well. And this is incredible because, as you say, he's he's low-ranking. He doesn't bring that much information with him, but he is believed, particularly by James Angleton, who is the current head of counterintelligence within the CIA. Galitzin arrives with a handful of documents, and according to the CIA's own internal report, which was only declassified about 10, 12 years ago, none of them were of any real importance. He was low-ranking, he didn't have much to offer, but he was incredibly demanding. He was a diva, in their words, from day one. And he insists, absolutely insists, that he is the only true defector. I, Galitzin, am the only true defector. Anyone you've had before me or who comes after me is false. He's, a, in CIA parlance, a dangle or a provocation. Now, Looking at it rationally, and the CIA took some time, but did eventually internally look at this rationally, this was mad because he had so little to offer. But James Jesus Angleton, the head of counterintelligence, who was a curious figure, to put it mildly, swallowed this hook, line and sinker. And he decided that Galitzin was the one. And therefore, anyone who wasn't Galitzin, any other defector, any other source of information, was false. Worse, anyone who had supported or believed any of the other defectors or informants, Golinevsky included, must, because they were bogus, they must be traitors. So, what you see starting in December 1961 are the first tendrils of this web of madness, which will come to tear the CIA apart for 10 years. And I guess you've got this mood music in the background with Burgess and McLean and and other moles that have appeared in, in previous years as well that, that sort of reinforce this suspicion. Yes. I mean, to a degree, Burgess and McLean were primarily a problem, a British problem. Yes. Um, Philby was more of a, 
a US as well as British problem, not least because he had been very close to Angleton. And yeah. there, were, there were many questions to ask of Angleton about why. But yes, there's, there's mood music, but they, they aren't the only defectors. I mean, there are two key NSA, National Security Agency defectors, who disappear and turn up in Moscow. There's this steady, if slow, drumbeat of belief that the West is losing the intelligence game. I mean, it, it, it is... Much was talked in the Cold War about the missile gap between the West and the Soviet Union. What was really true was the intelligence gap. There was a huge disparity in the effectiveness of Western and Soviet bloc intelligence. And as a result of this paranoia, the CIA decided to renege on uh, Golinevsky's contract that he that he has with them on New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty-three. Yeah, I mean, there's a we've really shortened the timescale there, but we we have for, because uh, you know because we have to. I know. <laughs> yeah, because there's so loads much. more in the book, listeners. You want to you want to read the book if you want the full detail. But <laughs> so for two years, Golinevsky is. Divald gives more and more and more information. And for two years, there is a growing split behind the scenes within the CIA. And so while one half of the CIA is championing Golinevsky, another half, led by Angleton and his apostles, is beginning to work against Golinevsky. And it culminates, as you say, Really in sort of New Year's Eve 1963, January 1964, with the CIA cutting Golinevsky loose and beginning what, by any standard, is a campaign of harassment against its former star agent. Yeah, yeah. And the press get wind of Golinevsky's story as well and his 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 story is published in march i think of 64 as well yeah for three years from more more than three years from the moment he landed in in the u.s he had been very aware that his former colleagues in the ub and indeed the kgb would be looking for him they they took a pretty dim view of traitors who betrayed their country and their secrets to the West. Um, and so security was was a big issue. And he avoided, and in fairness, all agencies avoided any reference to him whatsoever. And you know, there wasn't, although Polish intelligence were looking for him, they couldn't find him. They suspected he was in the States, but they weren't sure. So he, at this point, he's living in a CIA-guarded apartment block in New York, in Queens. And he has been out of the public eye. What made that unsustainable was a private bill in Congress, a private act of Congress, to grant Golinevsky the right to apply for US citizenship. 
U.S. immigration law meant that because he'd been a communist bloc spy agency uh, employee, he was barred from applying for U.S. citizenship. This private bill, H.R. 5507, was designed to get round that. And that began in early summer 1963. And surprisingly, it didn't leak, although it was in Congress. Um, no one found out about that for almost a year. But it was that bill, that congressional bill, private bill, which led to his outing. And when he was outed, he was outed in spectacular style. And at the same time with this harassment, you know, his money's being cut off as well. So he's struggling there. I think his wife is ill. Yeah. I mean, so he's he, having to pay hospital bills. He's He's been put on finally, after some argument, a full employment contract. And he's paid generously. I mean, I have to say the, the amount of money the CIA were paying him when they were paying him was generous by any standards. And they gave him a relocation allowance and compensation for loss of pension and healthcare rights. But very quickly, when they reneged on this, they cut him off without almost without a penny. And he and Ermgard, now his wife, are living in New York. They're having to pay rent on the apartment. They have very little income. They're not allowed, obviously, to work or to appear in public. And Ermgard becomes ill. First of all, she has a breast tumour, which has to be removed. And then she becomes pregnant with their first child. Now, had the contract, had the CIA not reneged on his contract, uh, that wouldn't have been a problem. He would have had healthcare benefits. He didn't. He suddenly faces paying for the surgeon's fees, the hospital fees, all of these huge American healthcare costs out of his dwindling amount of cash. And that becomes a problem. Obviously, this is putting a lot of strain on Golianevsky, as, as you can imagine. But the, the story takes a bizarre turn with him declaring that he is Prince Alexei Romanov, the son of the last Tsar of Russia, who was believed killed... Yeah. <laughs> if 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 you'd bear with me while I back up just slightly. <clears throat> um when I started looking at this story, and you know, I'd known about parts of the story for 30 odd years more. What always puzzled me was why the CIA would cut loose and have us and eventually attempt to discredit. The agent, it said, was the best Cold War spy it ever had. And after a little bit of digging and prompting the agency to divulge at least some of its paperwork, the answer came, well, Golinevsky went mad. And evidence of this madness was that he declared himself to be Alex, as you say, Alexei Romanov Tsarevich, last surviving, miraculously surviving son of the last Tsar of Russia. 
And that's that's fair enough as it goes. He did indeed do all of the above, and it would certainly be a reasonable assumption that he'd lost his mind when he pronounced himself to be that. Unfortunately, the timeline doesn't work. The CIA began cutting him loose, Kolyanevsky loose, before he declared himself and before he took the first steps on what would be a Romanov fantasy. So we're left again. Well, why did it cut him loose? And how did he even he go mad? And it will come back to that. So Romanov fever in the, in the 60s, early 60s, Romanov fever was beginning to gather pace worldwide. If we remember accurate history, recorded that the Bolsheviks had executed the entire imperial family in 1918. But no one had ever found any bodies. And in from the 30s and 40s onwards, there had been occasional claimants, pretenders, notably Anastasia. Anastasia, the mystery of Anastasia, generated at least two major claimants, and both were entirely fraudulent, I would have to point out. But the second of whom turned up in New York in mid-1963 and spoke to a publisher and said that she had the memoirs of Anastasia, who had miraculously survived this alleged factual execution of the imperial Russian family. And the publisher, a man called Robert Speller, decided that this woman, this odd woman called um, Eugenia Smith, was really Anastasia herself. And he published the book, this manuscript, as the true autobiography of Anastasia, who survived, according to the book. Golinevsky sees this, and he sees this in December 1963. Bear in mind, at this point, one half of the CIA thinks he's the best thing in, since sliced bread. Another half says, no, Golitsyn tells us he's a fake, so he's a fake. Golinevsky sees the book, sees the Anastasia claimant, and from the documents I managed to get hold of, it's very clear that what he sees is an opportunity. He sees the chance to get very, very rich. For years, there had been rumours that the last Tsar had smuggled out a vast fortune, Romanov fortune, out of um, Russia before the revolution, and that a lot of it had ended up in the United States. And in 1963, the estimate for the value of that was anywhere from 200 to $400 million. Golyanevsky sees this woman who's beginning to be taken seriously as a claimant to be Anastasia, decides, well, if I get her on side and she recognizes me as... Alexei, her brother, and I recognize her as Anastasia, my sister, then we can share the money. We can claim this money. 
So the whole Romanov fantasy very plainly begins as a scam, as a way to get mm. his hands on an alleged, never proven, Romanov fortune in the West. And in, in fact, he remarries Ermgard as Alexei as well. Yeah, I mean, he for the next two or three months, he carries on with this, working with Speller, working with the fake Anastasia, just as he's a fake Alexei. And in September that year, September 64, he takes the fatal step which will forever trap him in the Romanov, what the Polish intelligence in their reports called a czarist comedy. He decides he's going to remarry Ermgard. This will be his second bigamous marriage in New York. He's going to do it with in the Russian Orthodox Church. He's going to be married by the most senior cleric of the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. And he does. And that's the register, the church register, and the marriage certificate, marriage license, are in not his own name, not any of the cover names he's used or been given, but they're in the name Alexei Nikolaevich Romanov, son of Nicholas and Alexandra Romanov. And then several hours later, when his daughter is born, she is registered in the New York Health State Health Department as Tatiana Romanov. From that moment, there's no going back. He's been married by the head of the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia as Alexei Romanov. Tatiana is now Tatiana Romanov. He can't get out of what he has talked himself into. And... Also, the UB are getting a bit closer to him as well because they managed to work out what apartment block he's in but are unable to actually locate the apartment, I think. From the, from the moment he is convicted in the Warsaw District Military Court and sentenced to death, the UB opens an operation and it calls this operation Operation Teletechnic. That's both the name for the operation and the code name it gave Golianeski after his defection. And it has two aims. The first is to track him down. They don't know where he is. They think he's in the States, but they have no idea where in the States. So they begin what will end up being an almost 10-year operation to track this errant traitorous agent of theirs down and there's only one reason to do that and that to carry out the death sentence imposed by the court but they have in very 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 little success they tap agents they tap informants they even get people who have been close to the white house to try and discover where golanevsky is and under what name he's living but for five, six years, seven years, in fact, after his defection, they still can't find out where he is, which leads them to what is a truly 
Baroque Byzantine scheme and really a very, very tawdry scheme to target his, Golianevsky's, mother back home in Warsaw. They figure if he's going to talk to anyone, he'll talk to her and she'll be able to find out where he, he lives. So they send undercover agents in to variously seduce her to the point where she's more than willing, in fact, eager to go to bed with their undercover agents, all in the hope of finding out where he, Golanevsky, is. And they managed to infiltrate the publisher, Robert Speller's circle, and get him to help them with this truly extraordinary scheme to provide a bogus marriage to an American, rich American, for Golinevsky's mother, so that she could then go to America and lead them to Golinevsky. It all goes horribly, horribly wrong, but it does, in 1968, enable them, the UB, to, and the KGB, to identify exactly where Golinevsky's living. And he's living in this apartment block in Queens, on Long Island, just very close to JFK Airport. But in, in 1964, there's another Soviet defector, Nasenko. How does he fit into the story? The timelines of all of this were one of the things which gave me the greatest headache when I was writing the book. You know, well, there's Nasenko, there's Galitsyn, there's Golinevsky. Who goes where? Where? Do we... And you know, unraveling this, the rat's tails of these particular overlapping stories was well, was difficult to put it mildly. Nasenko, unlike Galitsyn, is a genuine and serious defector with good KGB status. But because Galitsyn has warned that every other defector informant bar him is bogus, the CIA, under Angleton's malign influence, decides that Nasenko is a fake and that they're going to treat him as a fake and that they are going, there's no polite way to put this, to torture him. And they do. And they bolt him into a specially constructed concrete cell for well over a year where he's in solitary confinement and subjected to some pretty nasty treatment. Where he fits into the Golanevsky story is twofold. Firstly, he is the logical end of what Galitsyn started. He is the extreme. The CIA unquestionably tortured Nasenko. They tried to torture, psychologically at least, Golanevsky. And the nexus is Galitsyn. What I came across was one of the, the private diaries of and the private papers of one of the CIA officers who handled all three, a man called Tennant Bagley. And his private papers make plain that he contemplated with Nasenko doing what they had already done and all begun to do with Golianevsky, 
which is to drive him insane. That's Bagley's own assessment, not mine. Wow. Wow. And that, that is an incredible story with Nasenko. I think you say that, he, yeah, he's held for 500 days in this cell. And I think he's he's held overall for something like 1,200, 1,300 days. It's an, yeah, it's an extraordinary time. Um, and all the rules were bent and broken to do this to him. And for no good reason, eventually, and we know this because the CIA's own internal analysis, subsequent analysis of the case was finally declassified a few years ago. They concluded, actually, he wasn't a fake. He was genuine all along. And they let him go and apologized and rehoused him and gave him a new identity. It is a it is a shocking story, and you know the parallels between what the agency did to Golyanevsky and what they did to Nesenko, although it was much more extreme with Nesenko, the parallels are disturbing and clear. I did find that quite quite shocking. I'm not sure how how I hadn't become aware of that that before. But this whole theory of a Soviet master plot of moles embedded in Western intelligence is is rolling over into the UK as well. And um, Peter Wright, he of Spycatcher fame, is uh, involved in all of this. Yeah. Peter Wright, then a senior, very senior MI5 officer, had been one of the had been amongst the first to be told of Sniper's existence. This is when the first sniper information before before Golinevsky defected arrived, identifying or giving the first clues as to the Portland spies. Wright was there from the outset, and he followed Golinevsky and interviewed Golinevsky all the way through for the next few years. And that would have been fine. But once again, Golitsyn comes into the picture. I have to take this slowly because it you know it took me a while to sift the various bits of muddy detail aside. One of the things that Golyanevsky had warned was that MI5 was penetrated and he talked about a mid-ranking MI5 officer and gave some details which should have been followed through. According to Wright, according to Peter Wright, they weren't. And they weren't because Galitzin comes on the scene and Galitzin says, no, 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 I'm telling you, forget everything else. Your mole is, and he starts naming names and he accuses the director general eventually of MI5, and indeed he, include, he accuses Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister. MI5 gets sent down this false trail by Galitzin, and it spends, like the CIA, exactly like the CIA, it spends the best part of a decade tearing itself apart, causing untold grief to numerous entirely innocent officers and setting back the effort against genuine 
KGB and Soviet bloc penetration to the point where the very likely accurate information that Goganevsky had given fell by the wayside. I did find that 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 section particularly interesting because they actually give Galitsin access to MI5 files at one point for him to point out who the the mole is and he comes up with Hollis. Yeah. Roger Hollis. It's it, what the agency at CIA and MI5 did with Galitsin broke every rule in the book. There's no there are no two ways about that. Galitzin demanded, and at Angleton's insistence was given, access to all CIA and MI files that he wanted, essentially. And he said, I will go through these, and with my great expertise, I will tell you who is a traitor and who isn't and who's a bogus defector, who's a dangle, who's a provocation, but only I can do this. And astonishingly, they did, both in the States and in London. He had access to all these files. He went through top-secret files, even though there were more questions than you could shake a stick at about his own bona fides and really whether he was genuine. What's your feeling about Galitzin? Because the more I read this book, the more I thought, God, he's the world's greatest dangle that has been accepted here. And he's doing so much more damage than, you know, any anybody else could have done. Yeah, I mean, the, the, official, the official line, if you like, from the CIA and from MI5 is that he, Galitzin, led them down false trails and devastated Western intelligence for at least a decade. And, you know, that's absolutely true. What was his motivation? Who really was Galitzin, if you like? Now, that's a very much more difficult question. And it's almost impossible to answer without access to all the relevant files. And curiously enough, the CIA is... Oddly, more open than MI5, but it hasn't released and won't doesn't release all its material on Galitzin. In fairness to it, it can't because Angleton destroyed a great deal of it. MI5 just won't give anything out. So, trying to analyse what made Galitzin tick was he a con artist? Was he? deranged or was he frankly a soviet dangle or provocation is very difficult what we do know is that he he ruined lives he devastated he tore the intelligence services apart and he was he played a fundamental role in the discrediting or harassment of Golyanevsky, which isn't great, but beyond that, the chaos he caused caused the West to lose the intelligence advantage which Golyanevsky had risked his life to give it. 
And Golianevsky is sort of, as you say, he's locked into this Romanov claim that he can't get out of now. And he's making even more bizarre claims. I mean, he claims that this guy, Guy Richards, I think, who's a New York reporter, is Reinhard Heydrich, the um, the former, uh, well, he was high up in the in the SS, and that Henry Kissinger is the member of a communist fascist underground, amongst other claims. <laughs> amongst many other claims. I think one thing is true. Golianevsky did go mad. He did, in the CIA's own words, in its own documents, I mean, he, he, he went insane. He went quite mad. It didn't, he didn't go mad when they said he went mad, and the agency itself was responsible, in many ways, for pushing him down the path to insanity. But when he went mad, he went crazy. And locked in this Tsarist fantasy, in this I am Alexei Romanov, people were sucked into his wake and sucked into his schemes. And if they didn't go along with him, when, and most people did fall out with Golanevsky relatively quickly, even the extreme right-wingers with whom he, the John Birch Society people with whom he became associated, even they fell out with him. The moment you fell out with Golanevsky, he added your name to his pantheon of villains and created yet another fantasy about how you were a member of a a communo-fascist underground which had tentacles all over the world. The classic... The classic example of this was the former British Liberal MP, Peter Bessel. Bessel, who was Jeremy Thorpe's right-hand man and would eventually go on to become Thorpe's nemesis, had bought in to the Golianevsky romanov fantasy in the late 60s and very early 1970, and had put down questions in Parliament, backing Golianevsky and backing his claim to be Alexei Romanov, and had arranged a meeting with him. And when he goes to meet Golianevsky in New York, bear in mind, Bessel is not what you could call a stranger to untruth. He gives Golianevsky some documents. Golianevsky promptly uses those to to forge other documents. And Bessel flips out and says, that's disgraceful. You can't forge documents. And denounces him and says, I don't believe you're Romanov anymore. At which point, Golianevsky invents an entirely ludicrous fantasy that Bessel an former English Liberal MP, is a former Soviet NKVD spy chief who died, who had died in reality decades beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I was quite moved by the, I think it was a, a piece at the end of the book where you try to make contact with his daughter to, to 
try and get some insight into you know what was he like as a father and the other side of this because you're obviously relying on this documentation most of the time and official correspondence and stuff like that and trying to find almost the what was the real man behind this facade like yeah i mean i i like generally to work from primary sources i like documents i like bits of paper which are first hand and which you can rely on but as you say what that tends to tell is very much a factual narrative i mean it's he did this he said that he said this to me he did this to me i say this says golyanevsky to some extent you can get a sense of the man and his madness as well from his own writings and it took a while but i finally unearthed these extraordinary affidavits he'd filed and lodged at the New York City Register Office. But even they, which give some indication of Golinevsky, the man, don't really go far enough. You know, I, I have a slight unease about the whole spy genre, that it tends to be quite boisy. You know, it tends to be quite a male thing and it tends to lose sight of the nuance of human the human condition if you like and i i wanted still want to know more about golyanevsky the man the father and so i tracked down as you say his daughter who i think is probably the last surviving the last person alive who would be able to tell me that she doesn't now use the Romanov name, or indeed Golyanevsky's name, but I managed to track her down and I got her address, her physical address, her email address and her cell phone number. And I wrote to her and I emailed her and nothing, no reply to any of the several attempts I made. So in the end, I thought, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet. I'm going to have to ring this this woman up and see if she'll talk to me. And I finally got hold of her on her cell phone and said, told her who I was, told her what I was doing. I was writing this book about her father and that I'd love to talk to her. And she confirmed she was Golyanevsky's daughter. And at that point she said, but I won't talk to you. Please don't try and talk to me again. Please respect my privacy. And of course, I'm going to do that. I I respect Mm. her privacy but I do wish it were otherwise. You know, this man, Golanevsky, was a mass of contradictions. He was an incredibly brave agent who worked undercover voluntarily for the West inside Soviet bloc intelligence. He was a devastatingly effective spy for the West. He was also an arrogant greedy thief. He stole a lot of money from the behind the Iron Curtain, a bigamist, a liar, a fantasist. You know, how do you resolve all these contradictions? How do you how do you come up with a rounded portrait of a man who was all of this and more at the same time? Well, Tim, I think you you've done a great job 
to try and do that. You know, the the story is it's frankly unbelievable. You know, there's ex- excerpts of it where you just think it, it it's unbelievable, but it's it's a really good read. I mean, have you got anybody interested in the movie rights for this yet? Well, my all of that happily is in the hands of my agent. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but I mean, when, when we talked about it, he and I, um, he said, you know, yeah, as all good agents should say to their authors, there's absolutely a Hollywood movie here. And then we looked at each other and said, well, actually, there's two, isn't there? It depends which story you're going to tell. You can tell the story, the story of Golyaneski, the agent, the intelligence asset, the very brave man, flawed man, or are you going to tell the story of this Romanov fantasy, this nonsense? And you know, I'd love to see a movie made about it because I think he, I think he's a fascinating character. Whether that happens, whether that could happen, because of the conflicting natures of the story, conflicting natures of the character inside this one man. Not my issue, not my problem, he says. No, but it, it's a relatively unknown story of the Cold War. I mean, if, if you ask people to name who were the most important spies of the Cold War, you wouldn't get many that would come up with his name. No, there's a reason for that. I mean, he has been largely airbrushed from the history of the Cold War. And you know, and that's a that's an active verb, airbrushed. It's been done deliberately. Angleton and CIA or his acolytes in the CIA assigned credit to other defectors, notably Galitzin, for some of Golyanevsky's successes. They've sat on the CIA sat on his files. It took me many, 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 many months of nagging to prize out from Langley the pages from his files that I did manage to prize out. And MI5, when I contacted Five, and bear in mind Five was the the grateful recipient of so much of his information. And in fact, sent him a silver tankard to say thank you for all of this. Five said, confirmed to me in writing that it holds a file on Goyanevsky, but that it won't release it. It says, due to the continuing sensitivity of the material contained within it. Well, really? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make much sense. Goyanevsky defected 60 years ago. It's 60 years this year that he defected. The Soviet Union collapsed three decades ago. Really? What is the continuing sensitivity which stops us, the people who pay for all this, the taxpayers, if you like, knowing what was done in our name with this extraordinary man, this extraordinary brave but flawed man? And for all those reasons, Golinevsky has has been airbrushed from the history of the Cold War. If nothing else, I hope this book will put him back in the spotlight so that, crudely, MI5 and the CIA can no longer continue to hide the material that they hold. Now, Golinevsky 
dies in sort of relative obscurity in the early 90s. What happens to Galitzin? I wish I could tell you. He just disappears, yeah. does he? So does so does Nisenko. That makes you wonder, doesn't it, about Galitzin and whether he was a Soviet agent all along. Well, one of the things I found, one of the bits of documentary evidence I found, was that they had related to an inquiry by a senior CIA officer who had been one of Angleton's disciples, who who decided he was going to investigate what had gone on and came to the conclusion, essentially, that Galitzin was a dispatched agent from the Soviet Union and that Angleton had either been a dupe, he'd been conned, or he had been complicit in this. Angleton himself coined, or claims he coined, the phrase wilderness of mirrors, which describes counterintelligence. And it's undoubtedly true when you go through all the internal CIA documents and reports that he got lost in that wilderness of mirrors. The question, I think, to be asked is, did he get lost deliberately, or was that just the nature of his job. There is further information about this episode in our episode notes, which will show as a link wherever you are listening to this. And included in there are details of our book giveaway. So don't miss that. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, 
received a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.